0: Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by talking about seersucker suits. I'm your host Charles Pobinger, coming to you from Washington D.C. With me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host David Will. David, how is it going? Uh,
1: seersucker jacket.
0: I oh, jacket. Insist. Okay. Yes. Yes. Not a
1: not a suit. Oh. Um, and I contemplated. Correcting you in the obstreperous frat boy um style that we all became somewhat more familiar with or reminded of uh a few days ago,
0: yes, this yeah, is but... um <laughs> and not in the in the sense that there are no tangents, obviously series lucker suits are a direct line to our main subject this week, which uh um... several
1: parallel direct lines oh right? yes so,
0: absolutely. Yeah which is going to be the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. Um, Although I will give our uh, listeners a bit of a warning on this in case anything gets choppy. David has told me there's a a hurricane approaching Istanbul that may knock out the power at some point.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are intermittent uh, power outages um, that I've experienced in this apartment over the last uh, couple of years that are probably due to um, just, the renovations in the, in the municipal system, but uh, Turkey is bracing for the first hurricane in history to hit Turkey, which is on its way up to the Eastern Thrace area, the broader Istanbul region. And um, so it's unclear how bad it's going to be. I didn't look uh, just before we spoke, you know there might be more recent news that indicates nothing like this is even possible, but, uh, they were talking about, uh, what was it? like 50 to 50 to 70 mile per hour winds, Hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And lots of rain. So, uh, because yeah, it's like, that's nothing for, you know, Florida, but um, you know, they're not, because they're not used to it. They're not sure what's going to happen.
0: Right. That's essentially what happens here in D.C. every winter, which is that whenever the snow comes, the city shuts down because they don't know how to deal with a small amount of white stuff on the ground. Um, right. whereas
1: so after, you know, 10 years of increasingly
0: freakish right. uh, snow. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I, you know, being from Cleveland, the night before big snow starts, you see all of the salt trucks revving up on the side of the road getting ready. And then, you know, unless it's something absolutely cataclysmic, the city functions just great because they take care of it properly. Here in D.C., every single year, they're shocked that snow happens. I mean, Mm. I've been here for nine years. These have obviously been, you know, the nine most recent years where um, climate change has started to have its impact on some of these more freakish events. And so I guess it's possible that, um, you know, this really was unexpected all prior winters, but at this point, they've had a decade to understand that snow happens, so. <laughs> yeah.
1: But, you know, some people just don't seem to understand how to uh, get on with the business of running this country or certain parts of it. I think mean, that does seem to be the the issue that maybe it is the sort of... Uh, There there obviously must be people who um, have very well argued theories for why um, DC governance, DC municipal governance is not as good as it could be. I am not one of those people, so I will not. uh, In this rare instance, I will stop myself from uh, forming an opinion of something I have no knowledge about.
0: Mm, It's really contrary to the theme of the show, but all right. I, I do accept have a certain
1: that. amount of knowledge about
0: uh, entitled assholes who went to Yale. Yeah, that uh, that does bring us to our main topic, which is the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Um, boy, this was a cultural moment in a way that I was not expecting it to unfold. Um, I was at work while it was happening, and you know, I had my phone streaming part of the hearings with my headphones in. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, I listened to parts of it. I couldn't listen to the whole thing nonstop because I mean, it was very emotional and, um, you know, I wasn't going to get any work done if I was listening to the whole thing. Plus, I mean, it was just rough to listen to. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: and, um, but you know, a lot of other people in the office were doing the same and <laughs> all of my other friends were talking about at their office, they were doing the same you know, here in DC, a lot of people's offices are political things, and so the entire office just has a TV showing it. You know, it's that right, sort of thing. Right. Um, but all my other friends were you know, we were texting during it because they were all watching it, and um, yeah, uh, I was looking at um, some of the news reports afterwards of the um, the the sites around not just DC but you know the country where. People are on the subway. I mean, the most common description I saw was people describing a bunch of women separately listening on headphones intently on the subway, getting very emotional about it, You know, starting to tear up. And um, I mean, there were pictures that you could see on the news of... One of the ones that um, ended up, I think, becoming fairly famous was um, an elderly couple on a subway that were listening to it together and seemed very moved by it. There was one picture of an airplane where every single... Um, you know, TV thing yeah, in the yeah. back of the seats you could see was, was watching it. I was not expecting this to have that kind of cultural reach. Now, it's possible that my view is still distorted because the people telling me everybody they know is watching it are also people who would be around, you know, people in D.C. where everybody would be watching it. But my understanding but, is well, that I, this really did have a long I reach.
1: That, I read that um, something like 20 million people watched it on TV, and then that's, I don't think that includes people who are streaming it over uh, the internet. I'm not sure, but, you know, that already is an enormous number. Right. And um, as another metric, did you see that uh, satirical viral video of uh, mashing up Pulp Fiction? I did. So that practically instantaneously got like 4 million views wow and then over the next couple hours i checked again to see how many views it had gotten and it went up to uh, on the the link that like the one link that i was looking at right went from 4 million to uh 8 million to 10.8 million um all in the course of a few hours and um Now, of course, it's the internet, so that's, you know, they're going to be British and German and, you know, Swedish people, you know, watching that as well. Um, uh, South African, you know, Chinese, who who God knows who. Um, But still, I mean, the degree of interest in the nomination is really extraordinary. This is another one of these things that, it's just odd to step back and try to orient oneself and understand what is going on in the world, because it's not just an American cultural moment. It's an, it's a cultural moment in which the world's culture is Americanized because everybody is watching this. And um, in a sense, it's terrible because, well, I mean, there are a lot of things we're talking about uh, in terms of, Kind of setting the base parameters of our evaluation of this discussion, but at the, at the very base of it, um, it's a scandal, you know, and scandals have a nastiness at the heart of them, um, regardless of where you want the scandal to, regardless of what effect you want the, the sort of discussion of the scandal to have, there is a sort of ineradicable nastiness in them, but it's extraordinary to look at it objectively and just see people around the world responding to this moment. Um, but I don't know. I It's weird to be abroad uh, and not be able to take the the pulse at all in the way that you're describing, you know, that if I could get on the Washington, if I could have gotten on the Washington Metro that evening and seen people, you know, um, that would have, I don't know. I mean, that's, one of the things one does as a as a citizen as a resident, but I have to do it from abroad and i you know I had to stay up until like two in the morning watching mm. testimony um but I was able to watch it uh all straight through and it was
2: that was it was you know to,
1: to having the privilege of of doing that um was especially extraordinary because of the contrast between. Watching Doctor Ford in the morning, and then uh, Judge Kavanaugh in the afternoon, and this, the the difference between them could not have been more stark. It was absolutely extraordinary to imagine that that this was that that juxtaposition of um,
0: modest
2: but insistent grace. In the you know, that Ford brought, um and then just bowled over by this um brash conspiratorial um hypocritical
1: snide assault in the afternoon. It just it was it was just crazy.
0: Yeah. I agree. It was, that was such a jarring shift that, I mean, I, at the time, as, as Kavanaugh started to do his opening statement that was just unhinged, I was starting to think, oh, this is just, it's it almost sounded from some of his, oh, the left and the Clintons are trying to get revenge, made me think, oh, he's given up on becoming yeah, well, a Supreme Court justice. I totally
1: agree. I totally agree. I think his, I think his, uh, approach was, I think he had two main, uh, Sort of pillars to the to the structure through which he wrote his opening statement. One was um, I have to come at like in order for Trump not to pull my nomination. Right, exactly. I have to come out swinging, and then two, um, I think it was to some extent the kind of you know Sun Tzu uh, concept that if you you have to leave people a way out or they'll fight to the death. Right, and I think he said, you know, he, he basically just said, like, I'm going to burn my, you know, change the change the reference here, Vasco de, or um, not Vasco da Gama, Cortez. Cortez yeah, I'm going yeah. to burn the ships, you know, and fight to the death here, and either win it all or, or my whole life is over. And in that sense, he's right, actually. About um, there's this bigger discussion. And, you know, if we want to try to step back and structure our conversation, we can do that. But one of the one of the Questions is the debate over um, the extent to which denying him the Supreme Court seat is destroying his life or ruining his life. And um, to some extent, I think there's a fair um, case to be made that it would be not directly as a result of simply not getting the seat, but because if he doesn't get the seat, that would then set in motion a series of investigations that might actually lead to him right. being disbarred and or um, criminally investigated or or punished. Um, so I think, you know, those two things led to him, you know, just completely uh, losing it, you know, write, writing something that was already very combative and aggressive and, like I said, conspiratorial, unhinged, in your words, <laughs> in, in basically everybody's words. Right. Um, but, uh, but then I think, you know, once he got going, he, he also got the bit in his teeth and, and went completely out of control.
2: Um, and
1: I don't know, I mean, I like, yeah, you know, I have this, um,
2: this failing where I keep trying
1: to put myself in the position of the person I'm thinking about. And so, uh, it, it makes it very difficult to. Uh, share moments with other people because so much of our existence as human beings is social and therefore group based. And therefore if you don't mirror the values of the group you're in, there's a kind of, it's like, you're speaking a foreign language. You know, it's, it's like, you're, you know, coming from another culture. And uh, anyway, with, with Kavanaugh, it's like, I found the, the focus on his crying, Hmm. for example to be totally misplaced and wrong because that did strike me as directly and it wasn't talking about the calendars he was talking about the fact that his father kept calendars right but the, the calendars that he kept were a connection to his father and it strikes me as inhuman to mock him for getting emotional when discussing that on national television um That's, I mean, he is also a human being, and no matter how disgusting and entitled a frat boy, you know, he may have been, or rather, you know, no matter how disgusting a person, he seems to be as, he seems to have been as indicated by the most reasonable interpretation of all available evidence, he's still a human being, and he's probably now nothing like the person he was then. That is a discussion that I think we should be able to have,
2: even though, um, you know, a discussion we should
1: be able to have alongside the discussion of um, how to stoke our anger, our righteous anger, at someone who refuses to apologize
2: for the toxic, misogynistic.
1: Culture that he participated in, and um, <clears throat> and helps to continue at
2: that time in his life.
0: You know, I agree, and I mean, this is what a number of people have been saying about this, which is, if like, you know, we, we can we can go through a bunch of hypotheticals on what might have happened back in 1982, and look at what that means for today. And I mean, a lot of people have just said it's possible that he was a blackout drunk who did this assault while incredibly drunk does not remember it um and you know and and since then he's grown become a different person but the way he has approached denying this situation has involved what are let's be honest some fairly blatant lies easily contradicted by evidence from the time He's been insisting that he didn't drink that much. And we have all of this other evidence that we've seen in his yearbook, for example, not to mention the te- the um, remarks by other people who knew him at the time, that he was a massive drinker back then. And so the question is, if we had a guy who had done something like this at the age of 17 and then spent 36 years, you know, becoming a better person, and apologized and said, look, I don't know, I might have been blackout drunk, it might have happened, and there's no reason for her to lie, so maybe we should assume that it did happen, but I'm not that person anymore, and I'm sorry. That would be one thing, but instead we have a person who is continuing to lie about a lot of the little things that are so easily disproven. It's very Trump-like in that sense. Um, again, because you mentioned before, his his real audience is Trump, and yep. and." One of Trump's big things, Trump has always been big on, you must deny every single charge, never give an inch on anything, be belligerent and accuse them back just like he did. Um, And uh, Trump also is well known for telling easily disprovable lies. Yeah. So I I don't know. I I feel like even if he had – even if we're going to be very charitable and say this was a mistake he made 36 years ago – he's become a better person the fact that he's telling these lies now tells us he has not become a better person or maybe right. he's a few steps better like he he probably wouldn't get drunk and do an assault now but he's still the sort of person who doesn't take responsibility for his actions doesn't mind that what he's saying is true or not true and is willing to lash out and hurt other people for his own preservation yeah i think it's i think it's very common for people i don't think this is a particularly republican con,
1: you know democrat conservative progressive uh, you know, liberal left type. There's, it, 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 it's not a distinction that that falls along those lines, but just a lot of people have trouble distinguishing, um, what people do from who people are. Hmm. You know, because people are complicated and they do a lot of different things. Right. And same person can do bad things and good things, and perhaps the reason they do those good things is a character trait that is also responsible for bad things they do in their lives, you know? People are complicated. And um, he spoke about who he is. You know, I am not a person who, I am not that person. I am not a rapist, you know? I am not a drunk. I am someone who got into Yale, you know? I'm a Yale man. I'm a, you know, I did the, I did this, but not in the sense of, you know, as you said, like, because I drank, I may have done this one thing that doesn't represent the totality of who I am. He's like, anything I did, of course, represents the totality of who I am, because it's a thing that I did. Yeah, (laughs) that's, that's exactly, that's sort of the way his brain seemed to work, or at least that's the representation that he made. And uh, it's pretty common in, you know, in... Our public discourse, because our public discourse is is generally so unbelievably simplistic. Um, But you know, again, I'm I'm agreeing with that last thing you said. That um, you know, if he had said, like, I may have done this thing because at that time in my life I was doing various things that I'm now looking back with all the wisdom that I've learned, you know, that I've earned over the years ashamed you know of of uh this toxic joke that my teammates and i played on uh renata you know Mm -hmm. we didn't think there'd be any harm because who thought we she'd ever see the yearbook but you know we played the stupid joke and now i understand how bad it is for young men to bond by doing things like that um you know ask any of the Women's teams I coached, you know, they would know that I encourage strong bonds between women to help them grow and, you know, uh, sort of take ownership of their own lives. That that sort of thing. If he had said those types of things, um, then um, then there would be some evidence that there that something actually happened within him where he examined what he had done in the past examined the person he wanted to be and took specific efforts to move in that direction. Instead, he's like, I am a good person. Therefore, I could never have possibly done any bad things. It's just like, how stupid do you think we are?
0: You Pretty know? stupid.
1: Pretty stupid, evidently.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we elected Trump, so... There you go. That's it. I mean, so the, the tweet that I put out that evening, there was a news alert from the Times that said, Trump was very happy with Kavanaugh's performance, right? And said that he showed the country why I nominated him. To (laughs) which, to which my response was, for once, Trump and I agree. Yeah, it's. I mean, there was a before the 2016 election happened, um, when we thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. um, There were people talking about how because of who Trump was and how Trump acts and what. Sort of appeal he was trying to get from his followers on things he did and said. And the fact that his opponent was Hillary Clinton, um, there was a remark that the election was as close as we could get to a literal referendum on toxic masculinity. And, you know, it, 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 there's something almost too perfect about the result being that the majority of the country um, rejected toxic masculinity, but a smaller number of people whose voices were magnified and made louder had the power to say, no, toxic masculinity gets to stay and win. Yeah. And this, well,
1: I I agree with you to a certain point there, but I mean, the problem of course is that Clinton was such a flawed candidate, not necessarily because of, again, not necessarily because of who she was, but because of, all that she brought with her, all the, all the associations, memories, you know, the baggage that she brought with her that a lot of people just didn't want in the White House. um, That connection sort of, sort of breaks down in a way that, um, you know, specifically just in this particular context, people who um, either from the left or the right, and we've discussed this before, um, were re-examining their, stance towards Bill Clinton and his womanizing and Hillary Clinton's, um, role in the way that the American public, uh, interacted with those issues. And it, you know, it, it gets complicated. It's not, and I'm not making excuses or equivocations, uh, here, or I'm sorry, I'm not trying to, uh, um, paint out, uh, sketch out some kind of equivalence between, Uh, Clinton and Trump Um, Bill Clinton that is but (laughs) to some extent this is one of the ways in which um, you know it's like things shouldn't have had to go this way things shouldn't be the way they are now but in one respect the fact that Bill Clinton is not in the White House allows the Democratic Party and the country as a whole to react to
2: trump roy moore harvey weinstein uh this whole
0: issue in a more sane way i agree with that um of course the but then that gets into the stranger part that even even though it's true that she has you know stayed with bill clinton despite a lot of things that he's done it still feels wrong to sort of blame her for things her husband did that were also hurtful to her.
1: Yeah. Well, that's kind of, that's part of my point though, is because, you know, is that if, um, if Clinton were in the position of actually holding power and actually holding the public spotlight, as opposed to just kind of being some, a lot of people still respect and think about, but not, you know, but, but someone who only the Republicans are pretending is actually running the country. Um, It would just,
2: it would turn the, it would turn the discussion
1: over the political and legal, uh, ramifications of our
2: national and again, global, uh, turn to address this festering sore of
1: anguish, repressed feelings of violation that women have been dealing with, um, you know, it just it would just make that much more difficult because you'd have Democrats having to kind of split hairs about
0: about Bill Clinton. Yeah. I mean, I I do agree with that basic principle. And something else that I want to add, there is, you know, we always have to look for silver linings in clouds. Unlike you, I would never suggest that Hillary Clinton victory followed by a Ted Cruz win would in any way, shape, or form be worse than the Donald Trump government. But um, there is something very freeing and wonderful feeling about being unshackled from all of the old Clinton scandals. I mean, part of the reason that having people retire from the spotlight when they stop being president and not running for another office is a lot of two term limits right you know, having a, a, lot, a, to... a lot of bullshit that you have to put up with sort of can go away you don't have to hear anymore about whitewater or or the star report or anything bill clinton did <laughs> so we thought <laughs> yeah so we thought um any of that stuff that bill clinton did and so and also again it's freeing that we can get past One of the things that's that's tricky about Bill Clinton, though, is that the most serious allegation against him um, was the one by Winita Broderick. And that one, most people didn't really hear about because that one actually came out, if I I recall correctly, and seeing as I was about 14 at the time, um, I'm probably not. That one came out towards the end of all of this impeachment stuff and kind of got buried in the news. So people aren't as aware of that one, but that one was a very serious accusation i mean all of them were you know the 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 paula jones thing was was still serious too but um the Renita broderick one is one of those unforgivable ones but it kind of got lost in all the news and then we didn't really start to hear about it again until and this was towards the end of clinton being in office anyway and then we didn't hear about it much until later and so it's that's something that democrats never had to reconcile with and it's also i mean to step back a bit, this is part of where when something happened a long time ago and it feels like old news, people can be fairly forgiving, um, which is, again, why Kavanaugh could have said, I got blackout drunk a number of times. I don't recall this incident. I'm incredibly sorry if it happened, but I'm not that person. One of the other things that has always sort of shocked me is that in my entire lifetime, you know, Ted Kennedy is this lion of the Senate. He's right. very respected and loved by everybody, and but, nobody talks about. Him. Well, I mean, everybody on the right that I know talks about Chappaquiddick <laughs> yeah, when everything yeah, comes yeah. up, but nobody on the left does. And um, when you look back at it now, it's you know, it, for me as somebody who that happened, what in seventy something, I don't remember what year Chappaquiddick was, but it happened so it happened before I was born, I believe, and. Um, When there's this thing that you don't hear about until much later that then happened decades ago and everybody else seems fine with it, it's very weird um, when you hear about that person. Because if something like that happened today, I would hope that that person gets drummed out of the Senate. Um, right. I mean, w- What the Democrats have been able to do with Bill Clinton out of the White House, um, when the Al Franken stuff came up, which was bad but not nearly on the level of what Kavanaugh has been accused with, what Clinton had been accused with what Ted Kennedy had had done um you know he got kicked out of the senate fairly quickly and yeah. and this is it, the comeback it, a lot of it, republicans are like oh you're there's, just... no, there's no there's no sort of political um
1: you know opportunism at its base here with the clinton thing it's again to rephrase what you were saying or at least to say what i think you know
2: <laughs> that's the whole point
1: that's the whole point of the of democracy period of elections right, You know, of the Constitution that says every four years we have an election for this office, and obviously the other terms as well, uh, and then the subsequent constitutional amendment to say in every, you know, two terms, you just have to get a new president because there's – it makes an automatic mechanism for clearing out the dead wood in recognition of the simple fact that our society changes over time, and it just is not worth fighting the same
0: stupid battles. Right, and if you know, Bill Clinton – if Bill Clinton court. were on the ballot, we'd never be able to move past that because we'd always be like, well, we have to defend him. He's our guy. He's the one in the election. Right. And
1: it's just like, no, it's just not worth it to talk about that anymore because, um, you know, you can make whatever, uh, as, you know, sort of having a historical conversation, you can evaluate the decisions that were made in the past in whatever light, but you can now say with the benefit of, The fact that we just, I mean, things don't always get better over time, but we are really in so much better a place than ever in the history of the world. I agree with that. You know, in so many ways. And like the, the bizarre paradox, of course, is that the threshold for the complete destruction of human life on the planet is much lower than it has ever been in the history of the world. Um, but but again that's a that's a paradox it's not it doesn't discount the actual fact that, in terms of quality of life, things are better than they've ever been for more people. Um, you know but we have these mechanisms precisely because whether it's on the right or the left, you need to just let these people go, let these old battles go because they're not relevant anymore. You know anyone who's talking about Bill Clinton now is only tenuously relevant they're they're, you know they're only saying something that is that is tenuously relevant to current conversations because okay some of those same personalities are still in office but you know bill clinton is not and um we can draw analogies we can draw lessons it's like okay we need to do this better than we did that then um but you don't need to defend or attack clinton because the people actually in front of us now are different people with different stories
0: and, um, yeah. And it, I mean, every time it's amazing how much I hear people saying, oh, well, the, the Democrats just use this stuff to go after Republicans and, um, and, uh, and, and they, they wouldn't go after their people. And what about, what about, what about, but you can always point to Al Franken and say what he did is, is, you know, less than what was accused here. And we kicked him out of the Senate. We didn't just censor him. We didn't just, um, you know, start ostracizing him. We kicked him out of the Senate. Yeah. We forced him out.
1: It wasn't like, oh, you have to go for a weekend to this sensitivity training to understand what a bad thing you did. It's like, get the fuck out. Someone else can take your spot.
0: Yeah, that's what, like, they actually did. When it was time to put up or shut up, they put up. And something that, I mean, this is just a sense that I have. Also, also, and not uh, to put too much on this, when Trump almost won Minnesota,
1: I mean, he he was within like half a percentage point um, of winning in Minnesota, you know, because of the inroads that he made in the upper Midwest in general. So the fact that, um, you know, I think most Democrats could have seen relatively reliably that there would be a kind of a, the pendulum will swing back. uh, But still, it's not a decision that they, you know it's not a decision without certain risk. And of course, um, Franken himself, when he first entered the Senate, won with like 600 votes. Yeah. So, it was very um, close. You know, the fact that they chose to elevate someone who was relatively unknown, uh, in Franken's place, it, you know, it's not as though someone from Hawaii or New York, uh, you know, was accused of something. And then they're like, oh, okay, yeah, there's, zero chance ever that a Republican would have this seat. It's like there was a Republican in that seat, you know, when he entered the Senate. Right.
0: He upset an incumbent. And this is all happening, which means there has to be a replacement election during a year where they're so close to possible control of the Senate, but it's still going to be so hard. And and the fact that the Democrats were willing to do that because of this important principle of accepting that this stuff is unacceptable... I mean, that is that is a big deal. And to pretend that they didn't do that or that didn't happen is absurd. Now, the other um, response that that Republicans have had to use for their whataboutism during this Kavanaugh stuff is what about Keith Ellison? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the charges against him, but he has his ex-girlfriend who's made some very serious claims. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I read the story about that Uh, when it broke and, or I think a week after it broke because I somehow missed the original one, but, you know, I read about that and I was horrified and shocked that he was still even in the house at this point. Um, Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean,
1: I think the thing is that we, and there's a broader discussion here, again, in terms of stepping back to try to maybe structure our conversation. Um, One of the things we've danced around is this topic of uh, what is the process by wit, it's like: Do we have new rules for evaluating these claims, and then do we have a new system for punishing people for things that either um, are disputed and would not uh, meet a criminal standard of evidence, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt? Um, and then, whether or not we do, do we have a Sort of established system for people to go through a process to be uh, redeemed to society. You know, we were we were sort of alluding to this uh, between the lines, talking about you know Kavanaugh effectively saying, "Yes, I I probably did that, but look at the sum total of my life. I'm clearly a different person. I'm clearly doing good. I'm you know I'm, I'm a public servant. I'm doing good for my country. Of course, liberals wouldn't think that that's true, but." right it's a political distinction not uh, a sort of public good distinction and um you know the uh, that i mean that is a question we have to answer um but uh but in the moment right now you know shooting from the hip in this in this moment that uh that needed to come and needs to be taken seriously it just doesn't seem, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's been a case, there has not been a case yet where the smoke did not show fire, you know?
2: Hmm. Um, like, it just
1: seems like, and I mean, we, we just haven't gotten to that point yet. And until we do, like, why, you know, uh, why turn off the alarm for Keith
0: Ellison? Right. Well, I, to- I totally agree with you. The, the, so one one element that does need to be mentioned in the Keith Ellison uh, part is that Ellison called for an investigation into the claims, whereas Kavanaugh has very pointedly during his hearing refused to say that he wanted an investigation, um, which was odd because it would have been so easy for him to just say that he did um, or that he was OK with one. I guess, you know, I can't be too mad at him for saying he lies about easily disproven things and then be mad at him for not saying he wanted an investigation when he clearly didn't. But, uh, you know, um, anyway, uh, the Ellison thing, it's, I I think we just have to sort of keep our eyes on that because if they do an investigation and decide, Oh, we don't care. He gets to stick around. Uh, that's a problem, but, but that hasn't happened yet. And, um, all these people whining about due process for Kavanaugh, even though, as we said, that's not how due process works, especially not when you're just, asking for a promotion. Um, Like it's not even whether or not he keeps his current job, it's whether he gets promoted. Um, You know, that's, that's a very different situation, which uh, there's so many elements that so many people just are getting wrong on a fundamental level about what a confirmation hearing is and what it's about and whether it requires due process and proof. This is one of the things I keep hearing people say, there's no evidence that this happened to which my response is, do you understand what the word evidence means? Because what you mean is hard evidence. You mean there's no videotapes of it. There's no you know physical reminders of it. But there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. And people, I mean, we're used to as a culture saying, oh, well, the evidence is just circumstantial as a way to diminish the quality of the evidence. But circumstantial evidence is you know admissible. It's real. It's an actual thing. When I was on a jury, I remember the judge instructing us that circumstantial evidence is when you walk out of your house in the morning and it's wet everywhere, it's circumstantial evidence that it rained. You didn't see the rain, but, you're pr- but you know what it means when everything's wet outside. It's theoretically possible that somebody's sprinkler went, sprinkler, sprinkler went haywire and doused the entire neighborhood. But when you come outside and it looks like it rained, it probably rained. And right. this is sort of what we're seeing here. We have, on the one hand, a a, um, you know, a, a witness victim survivor that is um, very credible. Everybody, one of the most untenably absurd things that I heard as the response from people like Lindsey Graham and Orrin Hatch was, oh, well, she's very credible. Of course we believe her. We just think she's mistaken. Right. And it's like, what does that even, she said she was 100% certain she knew Brett Kavanaugh. What could, what on earth do you, do you mean by that? It sounds like what they're really saying is they're trying to say, we just think she's a hysterical, crazy woman who's delusional and and and, and so forth, but they know they can't say that anymore.
1: Right. Uh,
0: and so they're trying to say, well, she's mistaken instead of saying, but she's crazy. And because, because they're also in a bit of a bind because her testimony was so powerful and so credible that you can't say, well, she's a liar. So because they can't say that, but they still want to push Kavanaugh through – they have to say she's well, not a liar, faith- but she's still crazy and wrong.
1: And what's amazing about this is not only just the, the un, I mean, still unbelievable bad faith in which they're entering the investigations. Where, for example, Grassley says we don't need an FBI investigation because we can investigate. The committee can investigate this, and so the Democrats mm-hmm. are like, "All right, let's as a committee investigate this by getting these other people right. in here, you know, and establishing timelines." And he's like, no, 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 of course not. That's not necessary. It's like, okay, you can't have it both ways. I mean, obviously they are trying to, but um, – and they will have it both ways unless the people punish them for this. But, yeah, you know, so that's just one example. But another is you know, to deflect from precisely what you're describing. They brought in this executioner, this hired hand, you know, this um, uh, Mitchell, was it? Uh, Mitchell Mitchell. Mitchell. Uh, prosecutor from uh, Arizona. And what's amazing is that, you know, all the pun, all the headlines that I saw from pundits were saying, you know, t- disaster. She did a terrible job. What they mean was she was actually approaching this as a professional. Right. That was to- my reaction. To Thank you. what Thank actually you. happened. And so when she was asking um, Ford, I felt a little bad for Ford because Ford was having to think, you know, okay, did this happen this way, you know, um, you know how close was this to the house? You know, it was this house close to the country club? Blah blah blah. Um, but you know the questions were all in good faith. I mean, they struck me as clearly, obviously, all in good faith. You know, and she went through them. And then of course, you know, the first two or three of the Republicans on the uh, you know when it went to Kavanaugh, um, all again deferred time to the prosecutor. And then when it became clear that she was also going to be professional and actually attempt to get to the bottom of where he was that summer, you know, that's when Lindsey Graham stepped in with his unbelievable display. Although even that, even that, I say unbelievable, I was stunned. I was, I was stunned when I, when I saw it, but, um, you know, I can believe because Graham is a weird guy. He's in a weird position because he really did do. Very dangerous things for a person in his position. I mean, as a senator from South Carolina, he tried to be a bipartisan. He tried to do lots of bipartisan things, Um, you know, and you can um, I mean, you can always kind of always kind of assume a cynical motive behind everything. But the, the fact of the matter is he ran risks that other Republicans have not. Um, and it strikes me as totally, totally plausible that he was genuinely hurt hmm. by the, because I mean, he said, you know, I voted for Sotomayor and Kagan, you yeah. know, and it, you can't, I mean, as a Democrat watching that, you know, no, none of the Democrats on that committee could have said anything about that because it's just, it's just a fact. Well, there is
0: one thing they could say about that, which is that he did not object to what happened to Merrick Garland. Yeah. No Republican Senator was opposed to what happened to Merrick Garland. They could have changed things if they wanted to.
1: No, that's absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, But where I'm going with
1: this is that, uh, you know, he had a certain amount of skin in the game and it's at some level kind of understandable that he would have this um, feeling of kind of being spurned. But at the same time, if if even if you could extend him that much benefit of the doubt, or you know that much sort of a, of a charitable interpretation of his behavior, it's Stockholm syndrome, right. because you know you know the story here is not that Democrats have you know refused to meet him halfway; it's that he never had any of the other Republicans behind his back. No. I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration. But, but just McCain,
0: he had McCain, and now McCain, McCain is gone.
1: Right. And and the issue is he had the Tea Party, you know, uh, and the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson, you know, Club for Growth, uh, Grover Norquist, all these people who were just narrowing the possibility of any cooperation, but they were doing it from the right. And so to the extent to which he's boxed in and the extent to which he had any sincerity in his sort of howl of anguish for bipartisanship.
0: Um, you know he was he was howling at the wrong side. Yeah, I agree. I, I, this actually something it reminds me of a lot is John Boehner because I remember when John Boehner was speaker and he would get really righteously furious at the Democrats for things that weren't working and were going were going wrong. And at the time, I was looking at that and sort of rolling my eyes because my reaction was the reason this stuff is actually going so badly is because of the crazy people in your caucus, not the Democrats. And 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 the fact that he would lash out so hard at the Democrats for this was really infuriating to me. And then, sure enough, as soon as he retires, he starts talking about how it was really his caucus that was the problem. Yeah, and that's kind of how I feel about some of this Lindsey Graham stuff. And uh, anyway, so we're close. Actually, in. just a, well on this on this note, though, I want to say um, you know because a lot of people have been very
1: upset, and um, a lot of my friends have expressed a lot of. Um, anguish and a, and feeling of kind of impending disaster and oh my god America's going down the tubes um but i have for the last week or so felt very differently and i'm aware of again this you know there's sort of a privilege here and a lot of people who feel a lot more vulnerable um, could, I, you know i absolutely respect the you know any criticism of what i'm about to say coming from a kind of like well you don't have skin in the game, you know, perspective. But what I would, what I see
2: is the pell-mell chaos of democracy
1: in full flux and it's agonizing and horrific at times, but encapsulated for me or yeah, you know, the encapsulation of of what I saw for me, was those two women who cornered Flake in the elevator. And by all appearances, you know, are the reason we're having this FBI investigation.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Uh, I mean, you know, it didn't seem like Collins and Murkowski were willing to take the heat that they did on the ACA vote um, this time around until Flake gave them cover. I mean, that's what it looks like. And if that is true, it You know, he had no, there was no glimmer that he was going to do this until those two women, um, accosted him. And, and that's the thing is like, you know, that's what the Tea Party did. They got in the faces of their representatives. They made them afraid of town halls and that changed their behavior, that changed their votes, that changed policy over the last eight years. And now, you know, um, Again, I said it a minute ago, um, it shouldn't have been this way. It shouldn't have had to be this way. Um, But it is this way. And the response is, uh, you know, women who are enraged by Donald Trump are telling each other their stories. They're telling everyone their stories. You know, women are hearing those stories in the national conversation and realizing, you know, and realizing me too. And men are starting to wake up and stand up um alongside them and you know i have i have confidence that our that our system is responding in the right way to this and again it it shouldn't have had to be this way um you know you again made a sort of cheap shot about uh, you know this is better than if uh clinton had won because if clinton had won the long term effects might have been worse um, you know, I did everything I could to prevent that outcome. You know, it, it sh we should not be in the position we're in, but we are. And what happens now, you know, what happens now is people are standing up and fighting and I'm, I'm very encouraged.
0: I agree with a lot of that. We're running, we're into the last 10 minutes here. Um, this is such a massive topic, just everything we're talking about here. Um, so I'm sure next week we'll be talking about it as well. Um, because, uh, for those of you, in, uh, hopefully I'll get this posted nice and quickly, but we're recording this on Sunday, September 30th. And we're at the point here where we've, we're just a couple days removed from, um, Dr. Ford's incredibly moving testimony. And we're at the point where the very next day there was so much, so such a reaction to Ka- the craziness of what Kavanaugh did and, um, the contrast with how amazing Ford's Testimony was um, that I mean I really was starting to think, wow, this is this is something amazing is going to happen here. And then the Republicans simply decided because Mitch McConnell is very good at this, at being a cynical, (laughs) horrible person and operator. He immediately said the next day, well, it doesn't matter, we're going on the vote anyway. And Jeff Flake said, all right, fine, I'll vote for him to get him out of the committee. And then Jeff Flake was cornered by two women in an elevator who were crying about how they were saying um, the sexual assaults on them didn't matter because they had been sexually assaulted. And that is, you know, what Orrin Hatch and Chuck Grassley were saying at the start of this of, oh, well, even if all of this is true, it was 36 years ago, who cares? Like, why should that affect what we're doing today? That is what the Republican message really was, was, you know, they'll say, okay, we'll put in a little bit of doubt about whether this really happened, but for the most part, we don't even care if it did. And and so then we the uh flake decided to flake on flaking as it were and <laughs> um and and say okay we need a week long FBI investigation before we do this vote. And so because he has so much leverage he was able to get that. So right now we're waiting for this this very brief FBI investigation which has a lot of constraints on it. Next week we may be railing about how horrible those constraints are. Um there are constraints on who they can whom they can interview, what they can ask about. Um, And these constraints are being set up by people in the White House who are responsible for getting Kavanaugh confirmed. So we could be talking about some horrible scandal about that next week. But odds are, I mean, we're not going to solve the problem of toxic masculinity in the next six days. So odds are we'll be talking about more of this next week. And I mean, next week, uh, we may, I, I think what we may have to talk about next week, the part that we haven't really discussed as much today the part that we are familiar, most familiar with, which is, you know, we went to Yale. we the straight, white, privileged guys who went to Yale, as we say at the beginning of every episode, in case you didn't know somehow. Um, and we can probably speak to a few of the things he talked about for that and a few of the things that we saw. I mean, when all of this came out and they mentioned that he was in Delta Kappa Epsilon – I mean, yeah, yeah. You can't, you guys can't see this, but David just dropped <laughs> his head as soon as I said that. Everybody at Yale knows what you think when you hear that they're in Deke, as they pronounce it on campus. Everybody knows what that means, and you know. So as soon as that came out as one of the details, it was one of those head shaking, oh my god, you know, we know where this is going. Things, you know, and I'm sure there are plenty of wonderful people in Deke, but it has a reputation. And it is a reputation that they still had and that we knew 30 years later. Um, Anyway, so – or I guess it would have been 20 years later when we were there. But anyway, so that's one element to get to here. But what I want to use our last 10 minutes to sort of briefly touch on that we may have to go into again in more discussion next time because there's so many facets to all of this is that um, to me – You know, and to everybody, everybody said, okay, Dr. Ford is a very credible witness. And they say this in part because if she's acting, she is the greatest actress in the world. Like, I saw what was happening there. There was, you know, the moment she said she was talking about the memories that you don't forget because she's a psychology professor. And she was discussing how norepinephrine works in the hippocampus during traumatic events. She's literally schooling these senators on brain chemistry while talking about her traumatic experience that is clearly uncomfortable for her and, you know, not on the verge of tears, but very, you know, shaken. This is an amazing person. And she does all of that um, and and comes off as as being very, like, it just, I mean, again, if she was not telling the absolute truth about all of that, then she is a better actress than anyone I've ever met. And then we go to Kavanaugh and I mean, here's kind of. Well, I have to interrupt because you
1: said absolute truth. And the whole point was that she kept saying, You know, to the best of my, like, I think this is how it was the, to the best of my knowledge, you know, to the extent that I recollected, this is what I saw that that she was continually making those distinctions, which is what made her so, so much more credible in my eyes than Kavanaugh because Kavanaugh spoke absolutely about everything. You know that did not happen. I never did this. You know, and a lot it's of that just,
0: stuff was easily disprovable. He's, he's like, "Oh, be- we wouldn't have gone to a party on a weekday." It's on your freaking calendar that you submitted as evidence to protect you. Exactly. And so anyway, I mean, and I guess we only have a few minutes left here, but what I want to, um, mention. So I mentioned her talking about memory because there are in this te- this testimony gave me specific moments that are now indelible in my hippocampus about what happened. And one of them is for me, the, like the big moment for that, that where she said something that gave me just the strongest emotional reaction is when um, she was starting to talk to the prosecutor where, again, I completely agree with David's view that what happened was they brought a professional prosecutor in and the professional prosecutor acted like a professional and not a partisan. And that's why people thought she did a bad job. Because she was doing her real job. But anyway, um, she said – the exact wording I believe was something, I've never been questioned by a prosecutor before, but I'll do my best. And the way she said that, the way she said I'll do my best, I mean it just hit me like a gut punch of here is a person who is so emotionally affected by everything that's going on right now. And what she's thinking about is how do I do what's right? You know, How do I – do this properly and you know and help everybody and that moment just and the way she said it and the way there was a bit of a lump in her throat while she said it that is just the moment that i keep coming back to in my mind and the moment of the kavanaugh hearings before this point before kavanaugh you know before the allegations came out the moment that is indelible in my hippocampus from that is a moment that john oliver made fun of on his show so many of you may have seen this it was when he was talking about the hearing, and he showed clips of what the Republican senators on the committee were asking him, and it was demonstrating how inane their questions were, and how they just wanted to rubber stamp this thing and move on and one of the One of the senators was saying i can 't remember which one it was was saying um, what they what they wanted to talk about I know it wasn 't one of the ones that I would recognize by sight um, because I remember the image of the scene. He was saying his question was about the type of Sharpie that Kavanaugh uses to sign his opinions. And it was this, like, oh, I noticed you use this type of Sharpie. Why do you go for that one? And then, like, having this big laugh about what type of pen to use to sign your opinions. And it's like, this is a monumental decision that they have to make. And that's how seriously they took it, is to ask that question. And now, when you think about that question, being the question that you use your time to ask. And then they cut to this thing on Thursday. We've got this five-minute segment that is constraining things. And it's just infuriating to think about those two moments together of the person who's trying her best to do what's right and a person who just doesn't give a shit. And, I mean, that just made me so mad. Yeah, I, I hear you,
1: but and I'm going to introduce, I think, a discordant note here towards the end. You're permitted. Just, but.
0: Um, you know, I think
1: that you. I hear what you're saying, and I, I don't disagree with your perception there. But um, I think that you cannot give Ford credit for being brave in that way. You know, for for, for tremulous voice, you know, and everything. Um, and at the same time, criticize Kavanaugh for being angry.
2: Hmm. Huh.
1: Both both are emotional displays that, as adults speaking in public, you know we should just evaluate on a scale of are they speaking in a controlled, measured way or not. And you can say maybe that Kavanaugh would have, you know, maybe he has more experience and he should be held to a higher standard. Um, but to me, it's just like, you know, because the thing is that Kavanaugh, I believe, was performing and right. he was performing that anger. Um, I don't, I don't believe that Ford was performing that poor little girl, you know, oh, you need I need to be protected. You need to believe me because I'm weak. But other people might think that. And that's part of the whole story. I mean, that's the whole that's the whole game, right? I mean, like why are women not believed? Why are what they say, why is what they say not trusted? And I think pe- some people um assume that they're being deceived by that sort of display of weakness and um i'm not saying that's what happened at all because again i thought she was extremely credible for a variety of reasons um but i just you know i think uh it hurts to have to say
0: this but i think you have to be fair i mean you have to i actually do agree with that um despite what it may sound like from what i've just said the 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 issues where i distinguish from that Um, have more to do with what I'm sure we'll have to talk about next week because next week we can talk more specifically about Yale and, you know, privilege of white men and um, specifically what comes to, because just, just to give a short mention of it, what Kavanaugh's display was to me from what I saw, from what my life experience and what my understanding has shown is that Kavanaugh's behavior was exactly how alcoholics and abusive people respond to being called out on what they're doing,
1: and how students who are bullshitting on a paper try, you know, respond to actual questions.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, it's uh, I I have been fortunate enough not to have to deal with um I've had very little, if any, a, a experience with abusive people in my life, and we're all and, and we can all be abusive on a scale. So I've seen some individual. Things that abusers do that people I know who are generally very nice have on occasion done. Um, but from especially from the stories I have heard from my friends who have really dealt with abusive people, what Kavanaugh did in his testimony was exactly that. It was that refusal to accept any blame for anything, that insistence that he is absolutely perfect, he's a choir boy, he would have been going to church, and it's so obvious, why would I even put it on my calendar? And the refusal to acknowledge things that were clearly there, the thing about Renate was so obvious and so clear, and he so obviously lied about it, that it's just insane, and you might think, why would anyone lie about something so easily disproven? But as we've seen with Donald Trump, that's kind of what the narcissists and the abusers do. They refuse to ever accept on their own part anything that might make them look like someone who isn't perfect. And I mean, and from what I've heard, I've, I've not dealt with alcoholics in my life, but from what I have heard from people who have dealt with alcoholics and people who are recovering alcoholics is that they're also, they, when you confront them on their alcohol use, they get angry. They do exactly what he did. They deny everything they ask you about your alcohol use, just like he did to Amy Klobuchar um, right after she had talked about her father's struggle with alcoholism. I mean, that was a moment that even he apologized for after the break. Um, I don't know. It's just everything Kavanaugh did was nothing but a series of red flags to me. And that's something I guess we'll have to talk more about next week. Uh, David, any last words before we sign off?
1: Um. Well just that uh I mean we were talking we were, again we're trying to be fair here and we're trying to sort of make um not whataboutist but actual meaningful comparisons uh, across party lines and um one that comes to mind is Beto O'Rourke you know who also mm-hmm. did something extraordinarily reprehensible
0: yes his uh, drunk driving incident for those his of drunk you driving heard. incident
1: where where he
0: apparently, I mean, the evidence indicates that he tried to even flee the scene. And this is at the age of 26, which is older than you should be when you, I mean, not that you should ever make a mistake like that, but that's even, you know, even if we assume a grace period at 21 in college, this is, you know, that's the point when you should be a professional in your life. Exactly. But but again, it
1: just highlights the fact that um, as a society, some people do get second chances. Some people don't. The goal should be to try to make sure as many people as possible get second chances and can contribute to our society. Um, and that opens the door to race and,
0: you know, in a way that we haven't discussed at all, but that'll right. be again for, I, I, it has to be for later. It's embarrassing. Fair to, point. But I mean, you're so. bringing up, bringing up Beto O'Rourke is a perfect example because of the extent to which he has admitted it. I mean, I've heard that at really? some points he's been less strong in how much of it he's admitted than others, but For the most part, he's not denying it happened. He accepts that it did. He says he's a different person now. That's what Kavanaugh should have done, in my opinion. Um, But anyway, next week we'll have to cover more of the Yale um, privilege angle of it because we all have our stories about that, I'm sure. Um, And so until next week, um, you know, I hope everybody listening is, you know, safe from abusers, safe from abusive behaviors. And from people who would treat you like that because one of the things that abusers are very good at is convincing you that you're lucky to be with them because you're not worth anything. And they're so wonderful that whatever they do to you is okay because you're getting something special just out of them deigning to spend time with you. And I mean, I'll have some stories about, um, things that I've witnessed next week, but in the meantime, um, have a great week and don't forget to love each other. Mm, Goodbye.